Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Well, I am so thrilled to have Iris Simpson Bush on the show today. Uh, listeners, I literally stalked Iris for months to be on the show. Um, Iris is president and CEO of Pigworks. Welcome, Iris. Hello, Sarah. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy you're here too. Okay, so I was thinking that president and CEO of Flying Pig, but now tell us the Pigworks. Is that because the Queen Bee is part of that too? Well, the Queen Bee, the TQL Beer Series, the FCC3, we really have a year-round lineup of events. Um, Bachfest starts in March. Of course, the second leg of the Beer Series is the 50 West One Mile, and that's part of Flying Pig Weekend. It kicks off the events uh, Friday night of Flying Pig Weekend. You know that we have every distance as part of the pig, everything from the full right. to the kids' event. You know, we have over 6,000 children who now participate in our incremental program and the piglet. It's just uh, a lot of people don't know the extent of what that weekend has become. But then we follow it up with, uh, we have the Hootie 14K, 7K, Oktoberfest weekend, and of course the Queen Bee half and four miler, uh, which, and they're all near and dear to my heart. What I started to say, which is near and dear to my heart, but when I think about it, they, they just all have their unique personalities and audiences. And so, so did you, did you grow up running a lot? Like was running a huge passion? No, um, I grew up walking. I lived almost, um, it was ex almost exactly a mile from school. We walked to and from school from the time I was six years old um, to our, you know, our elementary school. Then when I went to Marion High School, I would usually take a bus to Delta and then uh, get another city bus to school. But I loved if it was a pretty day to walk home. It was five mm -hmm. miles. So didn't run any more than any other child. But in my 20s, uh, some friends, uh, two friends wanted to lose some weight. They suggested we run. We went out for a run. They made it a block. I ran a mile. They <laughs> stopped. They never ran again. And I was hooked. I just, you know, it just felt natural. Um, yeah. I liked running. Running was, uh, I'm not, I, I do a lot of sports, but I'm not particularly good at anything. Um, when I was 30, fell in love with soccer. And really? That blended so well with my So, so and, then, and then I was telling you yesterday, you need to start playing pickleball. That's going to be our next. I had my first experience with pickleball, uh, actually August 7th on Jim's birthday. We played with our kids. I loved it. Yeah, loved it's it. the best. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's, let's start back. Native Cincinnatian. You grew up down on the East End. Mm -hmm. uh, one of four. Yep. Right? Three brothers, and you're the oldest. Uh-huh. And tell us a bit, a little bit about your family and upbringing. Well, um, a very close family, a very, um, oh, what's the word? Passionate comes to mind. But um, as you said, I was the oldest. Um, my mother was an absolutely dedicated mother and uh, 
to all four of us. She had me when she was 17 and all four of us by the time she was 24. Wow. Um, my mom was absolutely devoted to my father. Uh, the highlight of our day was our dad coming home from work. In fact, we had our baths just before dad got home from work. So we were all very clean and fresh. We lived in a three room apartment, um, all, four, all four children and my mom and dad. And uh, for the first, I would say six years of my life, my mom was so dedicated to us. I do remember I didn't get to go to kindergarten and I don't know why, but she was determined that I would not be behind the other children. So she homeschooled me and I started the first grade way ahead of everybody else to be very blunt about it because of her dedication. And uh, so life was, it, it, it was very humble. I, I, um, Iris, was um, generational? I mean, you've explained to me that, that you were poor, right? Yeah, yeah. Was it generational poverty? Oh, yes, very much so. Yeah, my grandmothers, both grandmothers were 35 when I was born. They were getting married and having babies when they were 15, 16 years old. Um, all down on the East they, End? Well, all all were, down yeah. on East End? Yes, that's where they ended up. But, you know, my my maternal grandmother was from uh, Alabama, grew up on a, a, not a plantation, but a farm with another Black family. They just worked the farm. That's how she grew up. Uh, a pig was her, her favorite pet. And uh, they, they weren't well educated. High school, if anybody made it through high school, that was the max they did. On my dad's side, ground, my granny Marie had her children. She started at 15. So yes, very Appalachian, not very well educated, um, rather poor. Um, so my parents, um, you know, started life with four kids by the time they were 24. My dad was a, a truck driver. Um, they had a, a, what I would call, I use the word already, but a passionate relationship. They were always either uh, hugging, kissing, or fighting. It was, mm. you know, the, the extremes. My dad left when I was seven. Uh, my brothers were five, two, and one. And my mom just really kind of went off the deep end. Um, it, it just devastated her. So we grew up in my grandparents' home. They too were very poor. Um, you know, they had raised their children and here they are with four more. I think I knew early on that they were getting stuck with us. So I tried to take on a lot of responsibility and take care of my little brothers. And uh, uh, I really kind of put myself in charge of them. They always laugh. Um, much later in life, when I got a promotion at WCPO, one of my brothers would often stop by to go to lunch with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, my brother came in and Randy said, um, he was there to see me and take me to lunch. And the receptionist said, do you know your sister was just promoted? She's a boss. And he said, do you know my sister's always been the boss? <laughs> I have that role with my brothers to this day. But uh, in any case, so we grew up in the East End, um, a very chaotic, tumultuous childhood. Um, a lot went on in our home that was probably challenging and difficult for kids. Um, there were a lot of, Sarah, you know a little bit about me. It was, it was full of contradictions. We were loved. We were never, um, I don't think any of the four of us were ever abused in any way. 
and there were opportunities for that. There was, there was violence in my home, mm-hmm. but never directed at us. Um, somehow in the midst of all that um, uh, drama, chaos, fighting, alcoholism, a lot of, it, it was rampant. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't directed at us. I would say we weren't necessarily nurtured the way children should have been, but um, we were sent to parochial school. The nuns gave us so much guidance, so much reassurance, Mm -hmm. self-esteem. But I can't say that that's the only place I got it. That's where I found orderliness, black and white, no contradictions. It was, to me, it all seemed very clear. The contradictions came in when I tried to take that home (laughs) and uh, it didn't all apply. So because, because at school, you would hear things like, Iris, you're so smart. Iris, you're such a good girl. Maybe I'm making up the good girl thing. And then at home, that wasn't what you always heard from your mom. No, that's not, Sarah, I don't mean to contradict you, but yeah, she was pretty positive toward me. She was very strict when she was very strict. Um, that's where I, I was, I guess I was referring to the contradictions that not that the diff- the difference I had between school and, and Catholicism and the life that was lived at home, none of the adults, nobody did the things the nuns were telling us were so important. And if you didn't do them, you were going to go to hell. And I'd go home and think, everything <laughs> I love is going to hell. They don't do I got you. So now you, so maybe the contradiction I was remembering you were telling me was that your mom knew that you were special, but she'd say, don't be so uppity. Yes, that was right. True. Yeah, but you know, that was the that was the kind of thing that did seem contradictory because I mentioned Appalachian. Yes. My family talked, spoke differently. I, I remember um, wash your face and rinse your clothes and things, words that, that I knew didn't, that weren't right, weren't proper. And somehow that always was offensive to my ear. And I would always try to speak properly. To this day, you know, I, I do pride myself on trying to use proper grammar and, and proper enunciation. I mean, my grandpa, he would sometimes, I would have to translate for him to other people. Um, one day when I came really? home. Really? Well, on a Saturday, really? here, here's the kind of translation. On a Saturday afternoon, I was about 16, a boyfriend and I went to a movie matinee. We came home. It was Christmas time. My grandpa was out on a ladder decorating our humble little house. Every year at Christmas, he would put up Christmas lights. I mean, this was a, a loving family in many, many ways. Yes. And grandpa, we, we get out of the car and start to walk toward the house. My grandpa turns around and he said, hey, honey, will you get your bow to run you down to Chinatown and get me some winking bubs. And I turned and I said, um, Chinatown's just a few miles away. Would you mind taking me there? And he said, no, well, uh, sure, that's fine. So we get back in the car and he looked at me and he said, what does he want? And I said, twinkle lights. <laughs> so that's, do you see, I mean, yeah, spoke differently and. Uh, but they, but they, but you said it was such a loving household and you were protected right very much so very yeah yeah my uh east end was a very rough place in a lot of ways um my mom worked at bars on eastern avenue i can i can tell you the phone numbers of some i still remember but um 
you know, I was walking home from school one day and I was told this by another uh, a neighbor who was in the bar, a bar patron. I walked by and two guys sitting at the bar made a remark about uh, young girls in uniform. And my mother pulled out her 22 and insisted that they take a good hard look if they ever went near me, what would happen? So Sarah, yeah, I had a pistol packing mama who was very <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is amazing. It is, and yet that was my life. I mean, and, and she, my mom was, she adored us. She was very loving to us. She just wasn't always making the best choices maybe for us, but would yeah. protect us with her life told you you were special. I, I, my whole family was very loving, very um, supportive. And I think that the self-esteem and self-confidence between them and, and, and the reinforcement at school is part of what helped me to make perhaps better choice, definitely better choices. Yeah, I was going to ask you that um, because well, let me, yeah, let me ask you that because I made an assumption before and I'm sorry about that. So what do you think was the difference? Why, why you? Yeah, I do wonder that sometimes. Um, I'm one of the few of that gener the generation before me and our generation who didn't struggle with alcohol. I never drank ever, ever, ever until I was in my 20s and played softball and realized how good a cold beer tasted after a softball game. That was my first, uh, and, and to this day, I, I feel, yeah, I'm not a teetotaler, but I feel I have complete control over alcohol. And that wasn't the case in my family. It was, I, I think, the, the, um, the thing that caused so much of the, so many of the problems, so much of the chaos. Um, that uh, failed dreams, lost dreams, just lots of things that um, I felt they had, my mom, my uncles, a lot of the people surrounding me had very hard lives. And, um, you know, I didn't realize that until I was older. There were times when they embarrassed me, when um, I was very confused at times by, again, the, the, the dichotomy between what I was being taught at school and what I was seeing playing out at home. And uh, so there were, there, was, there were contradictions and a lot of confusion, but I believe some friends who seem to have grown up in even more stable or certainly less uh, dramatic situations, they, they may not have been given the gift of, of self-confidence, self-esteem. So through all of that, that's what I took away and I think made a tremendous difference in my life. Well, and you know, you and I talked about this. I mean, your, your vast capacity for gratitude is such a gift of the challenges that you had growing up. I mean, you told me like gratitude is a huge piece of your life. You want to talk more about that? Yeah, it truly is. Um, there have been a lot of challenges along the way. Um, some things that, you know, I would have never thought that I would ever have to face, but always I can take a step back and, and, and realize that there's not, there also been so many blessings, people who believed in me, people who loved me, people who gave me opportunities, 
and um, opportunities. I've seen others who are just as smart or maybe smarter, um, very hardworking. I don't think too many people worked harder than I did. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. You, you have to share how many hours, the most hours in a week, in a week that you've worked and been paid. 84 hours at Zaire department store. And I was so grateful that they would allow me. They used to put my name in, and Zaire's out of business, so I won't get them in trouble for this now. But they would put my name in different departments. I was the sign shop manager. I was indeed the frontline supervisor. At, at 18, they had me supervising women my mother's age. Um, but in any case, yes, 84 hours. And I thought they were doing me a huge favor, $1.60 an hour. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Iris, but you were, you were, uh, you had the skill set to do that at that age because you were taking care of your brothers uh, very early on. And um, your first job was what? (laughs) A buck a basket doing laundry for ladies in the neighborhood. I would go to their house, carry home a basket of laundry wash it in a ringer washer, got my arm caught in it twice. My grandpa would have to come and and release the ringer. I was so skinny. It never really broke anything. My arm stuck in there and um, hang their clothes out on our line, you know, our clothesline in the backyard. Usually the next day I'd come home from school, take down the clothes, fold, iron a few pieces, take them back. And I got a buck a basket, you know, Sarah. uh, Yeah. And I always felt grateful for people giving me the opportunity to work. I really have to say that's always been there. And to this day, you know, I have one of the best jobs in the world. And I I, um, I had one job and I've had a lot of different jobs and one job in my career. Um, I was only there about six months and it was just awful. And he treated people poorly and I left. And, you know, other than that, I have loved what I have done. I love, because this is such a good reminder for me to be so grateful for the job that I have. Like, just you saying that, you know how it's so easy to get an ego to say, well, of course I have this job. I work so hard and I'm so good at it, blah, blah, blah. No, I am very grateful for the opportunity to have that job. And when you are, the people that work around you feel that. Well, and the gratification you get from it is a gift. It really is. I'm sorry for people. Um, And, you know, people of my generation can talk about the entitlement of the younger generation and how they don't appreciate things. Well, first, we need to remind ourselves, if that is true, it's our fault. And secondly, um, (laughs) if that is true, then we've, we've deprived them of something, a gratification that it does come from self-esteem and hard work and, and uh, well, in some cases, surviving things that are very difficult, being over, able to overcome the challenges. Uh, I do remember when we were raising our daughters, you know, you'd always get, and I don't think it's unique to our children, well, so-and-so's mom did this or they got a new car. And I would say, you know, I, I would say, re- respond to them with things like, Oh, I know, but they're being deprived of the gratification you get from having to save some money to, to, to get this or do that. And of course, you know, they would sigh and stomp away. But I right. truly believe that it wasn't just a, an idle comeback or lecture. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, 
Iris, you just talked about, you know, challenges that you've had, you had to overcome with growing up. Um, I, I'm hoping that you would feel comfortable maybe to share um, what happened with your brother and, and maybe take us on that journey with you. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I think I can. Um, my, I have three brothers. Um, I mentioned that the neighborhood was kind of rough. You know, as we grew up, I was very protected. Told you the story about my mom. Well, my brothers, they had it a little tougher. They had to kind of sometimes fight their way through and show their prowess. Uh, my oldest brother, uh, when he was 18, went into the Marine Corps and came back just, I remember he used to get bullied. He was afraid of everything. He was afraid of the, he, oh, he's going to kill me. But he was afraid of the dark. He was afraid of Ferris wheels. He used to embarrass me to death because he was afraid of everything. <laughs> and uh, he went into the Marine Corps and came home, if you pardon the expression, a real badass. I do remember as they were growing up, my mantra was, you will not grow up to be an East End hoodlum. Uh, you will not. Well, they didn't. They survived. They, Randy came back and he was a tough guy and he was able to protect his younger brothers from maybe some of the things he had to go through. So we all grew up uh, fairly unscathed. I think got a good, good education and uh, we all moved to different parts of the city. Um, my youngest brother, Ron, lived in California, Ohio. And Ron was the one who always, uh, he just would always go back to where we grew up. He loved to go um, to the local bars. He would talk about, they're the salt of the earth. These people are just the the, the best people. And he was right. There, there are so many good people in most every neighborhood. Well, the reason I bring that up, he used to love to do these, uh, you know, the football holes, pools where yeah, yeah. big board with squares and he'd go to Tammy's, uh, it was called Tammy's Airport Inn and they had a lot of friends there and they would do the, the, the football pools. Well, it was 2007, uh, the first preseason game. It was August 19th. Ron was there and uh, they all, you know, had this football pool going on and um, he drank too much. And so when it was time to leave, he went out and um, he would not drink and drive. He was adamant about that. So he pulled his truck behind. There was this um, like abandoned house behind the bar. It's on um, Carroll Street. And he was just going to sleep in his truck. We don't know all the details, but um, my brother was accosted, attacked beaten to death by someone who was trying to get drug money. Um, Sarah, it was the most horrific and I, I, it still feels surreal. I can't believe it happened to him. It was um, just horrible. And, you know, that was like the first time. And I think I was told by the detective the first time there'd been a homicide in our, in that neighborhood, East End, in like 30 years. Mm. It was a rough neighborhood, but not to that extent. So my brother was killed. My other, my husband and my other two brothers were out of town that weekend. Um, often in my life, and they would have all been there for, they were all, they rushed home. They right. were there for us, but my three um, daughters 
my um, adopted daughter, my nieces. Um, it, it was like all the women in the family just descended on our home and were there for me until Jim could get back, till my other brothers got home. And uh, nobody can take away the pain. Nobody can make it right, but to have that kind of love and support. And again, it just, um, I grew up in a very female dominated environment. Um, I'm very comfortable in a man's world, but it seems that a lot of the traumatic times in my life, uh, the women, we, we've had to rally together and they, they're always there for you. Um, Iris, was your mom living then or had your parents passed away at that time? Both of my parents had passed away. Um, <clears throat> I mentioned earlier, Ron was a year old when my dad left and mom just couldn't for a long time do the things, you know, that you need of a mom. And uh, he was, he was my brother, but he was also like my little boy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Took care of him for, for all those years. He was, excuse me. He was always very close. He would look after me, try to, you know, the roles reversed when he got older. Mm -hmm. I, I can tell you a funny story and you can use it if you'd like, but this would have been, I think about in the eighties, it was a rainy Saturday afternoon and I was, um, I had all my chores done. I distinctly remember going in and I sit down on the couch and I'm watching TV and I'm watching the movie, Mommy Dearest. Yes. And the scene where uh, Joan Crawford spanks her, her adopted daughter with a coat hanger. My youngest brother, Ron, they, there was a field by our house when we were growing up. I made, they always played baseball there from dawn till, you know, to dusk. They just loved baseball all summer long. So I made lunch, did most days called them to come in and Ron wouldn't come. The other two came and I called him several times. He looked at me, I knew he heard me and he wouldn't come. When he came home and thank goodness he had on jeans, it, the first thing I could grab was a coat hanger and I whacked him across the legs. When I call you, you come to lunch and don't you? And again, using that mantra, you, you have to listen to somebody, you have to obey. You're not gonna be an East End hoodlum. And so that's Saturday afternoon, I'm watching the movie and I think, oh my God, I hold that to my little brother. I hit him two or three times across the legs with his coat hanger and my phone rings before cell phones. I pick up the phone, hello, sister dearest. He was watching the same movie no! at the same time and he, he was laughing. He said, do you remember when you whacked me with the coat hanger? And I said, oh, Ron, oh my God, I can't believe I did that to you. I, I just can't believe I was so mean. And he said, well, I came the next time you called, didn't I? <laughs> so he, we were just always very close and we had that too to bind us. Bind us. <laughs> you better come or I'll whack you. <laughs> I think everybody has that one of those stories with their parents, though. My yeah. one cousin, Ellen, swears that her mother, um, what's the word, like ruined her because she used to put her in the closet. Like if she, she was one of eight. And so when she was bad, my aunt would put her in the closet, right, and lock her in the closet. <laughs> my aunt's like, well, my mom did that. I mean, it's not like there was a light on. 
wasn't like it was freezing either. Anyway. In hindsight, um, I guess we've all done things that we think now, oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> my excuse is I was just a kid myself. <laughs> That's exactly right. And he had jeans on. Come on. Yeah, really. It's okay. Yeah, really, it is okay. Yeah. Um, that's a crazy story. Yeah, it was too funny when he said Sister Dearest. I oh had such a laugh, such a laugh. <laughs> so today, that was 13, year, 13 years ago or 16, yep, I'm sorry. 13 years ago. And, uh, you know, August is always a, a just a bittersweet month. My, my husband was born in August and I love celebrating his birth. Uh, the man is, is, the light of my life and so and and we're just all born july and august so we have lots of birthdays to celebrate ron's birthday is in july but august 19th is always um just a day of sorrow i don't know how how else to describe it i think of him every day most of my thoughts are beautiful um i have come to terms with the person who committed the crime i mean he He's in prison. He will be in prison for life with no possibility of parole. He had, before that incident, before he killed my brother, he had, um, I think it was 18 charges of assault and battery. Mm. Iris, I mean, do you get to forgiveness on that? Well, I have a dear friend who prays for me all the time that I can forgive him. Sarah, I, I can't really... If I'm being completely honest mm-hmm. about it, I'm not sure it's forgiveness. I don't carry vengeance in my heart. I um, have come to realize there's something very wrong with him. He didn't, you know, I, whatever it is. And I don't presume to be able to to judge or, or, or you know, analyze what, what would cause one human being to do that to another. Um, the police, the detective told me he has a very low IQ. He, he, he's not necessarily, whatever the reason, um, I can find, I don't know if it's forgiveness. Uh, I feel like that's between him and God, him and yeah. my brother, if they're, if, if, if ever souls are reunited, I don't know. But so I don't know that it's forgiveness, but it's, it's kind of apathy. I don't want to think about him. Whatever happens, happens. Um, you know, Is it acceptance? Acceptance, maybe? Acceptance, yes. I don't want to see him. I don't, uh, I don't communicate at all. I, um, you know, the prosecutor wanted to go for the death penalty. And at the 11th hour, um, this went on for about a year, the pre-here, it's horrible, all that, that has to take place. Um, when I say it's horrible, you're reliving it at every hearing. That's why it's horrible. It's fair for the person who is facing the possibility of execution. And they came to my other two brothers and I and my husband and asked us if we wanted to pursue the death penalty or would we be willing to accept life in prison without parole? And it, it wasn't a difficult decision. None of us wanted to to make that call, as long as we knew he could never hurt anyone else. That's right. all we wanted. So um, that decision was made. He had an aunt who was, uh, I guess, his advocate and lobbying for him. And she hugged us and thanked us. And, you know, you could see that she loved him. She, mm-hmm. He had someone who was suffering as well. So I've always felt very confident 
we made the right decision as a family. And yeah, I don't, I think getting beyond hatred or vengeance is as far as I feel comfortable saying I've gone, but I don't, um, I don't know the true forgiveness. Did you have to work on the, um, the getting past hatred? Oh yeah. Like what? For a while, you know, Sarah, um, and I probably shouldn't acknowledge this, but there were times that I wished someone in prison would do to him what he did to my brother. That's all gone. So I, I, I definitely have gotten past the the feeling of hatred and wanting revenge. That was, um, I think, pretty short-lived. Once we got through the trial and I, I didn't have to look at him and relive it all the time, it was easier to let go of the hatred. The the God I, and oh, one of the most difficult things was when people who were trying to be kind would say, well, you know, God has a purpose. And I always felt God didn't God do that. Didn't have anything to do with this. No, not the God I love and believe in. And um, I believe me have had many times when I've had to seek forgiveness. I grew up Catholic. So confession and asking for forgiveness was a part of my life. It really wasn't that difficult. Once I I could get past, it's decided, it's done. He can't hurt anyone else. I need to just let go. So I have let Mm. go of all of that. Oh, I, I feel like, I don't know if this is true, but I read it in a book that, and I, I don't know if I agree with this, but you know, we're all put on this earth to learn certain lessons. That's what this book was talking about. And I feel like your biggest lesson has been around acceptance of people. Like, even though your parents weren't perfect, you accepted them for who they were and you still loved them. Mm-hmm. Now you didn't love the man that killed you, but you've gotten to a, killed your brother, but you've gotten like that acceptance piece is so, that is so hard. Iris, it, something like that it, 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 for anyone to have to go through it. It is very difficult. But you know, Sarah, sometimes <laughs> I think I don't know if I disagree or you know when I think about that, I have this strong feeling that we are born predisposed with some total of our experiences. Um, life, you know, makes us who and what we are. But. I've often felt that I, I was predisposed to certain things. Yeah. Um, I don't, I can't hate. I, 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 it's not part of my makeup, part of my being. Um, I, I admit that there was a time when I felt that I hated him, but it's not part of, of, of my makeup, who and what I am. I can't, I can't do that. I'm much better at loving. <laughs> and I know that yeah. sounds ridiculous in this situation, but I met my husband very late in life um, and, you know, had, had thought that I, I was married before um, alcoholism was but any, a, a bad part of that. And who would have thought that somebody who grew up in an alcoholic environment could possibly marry an alcoholic? I think you're desensitized. Well, for whatever reason, I didn't identify it. I just thought, you know, everybody drinks and it got much worse. Maybe I drove them to drink more. I don't know. But <laughs> in any no. case, um, you know, spent most of my adult life single, um, not not being an anti-man or, or against marriage, but just 
not feeling that I was ever going to find that relationship when Jim Bush strode into my life. And, you know, um, I was smitten. And then that's grown into a love that continues to grow from year to year. I, I sometimes think this is ridiculous that I'm at this age can still be so in love with someone because of, of the person he is and the way I can respect him and admire him and love comes naturally. I adore my nieces and nephews. I now have great nieces and nephews. I adore them. And the absolute joy of my life is it was becoming my daughters are my stepdaughters. I always acknowledge that, you know, in, in re, out of respect for them and their mom, they've given me permission to just drop the step and say they're my daughters. They gave me, the, oh boy, raising them, being a step parent was is harder, maybe even a little harder than I thought it might be. But they all come back. They chose me. My husband was wonderful at introducing us and making, he was not the kind of man who was going to bring a woman into their life and say, this is my wife, take her or, or not. Uh, he introduced us properly and gave them the choice. My destiny, I was already smitten by this man. <laughs> my destiny was in the hands of an 18, uh, uh, eight-year-old and six-year-old. <laughs> and uh, Oh my gosh. They chose me. They became teenagers. They didn't treat me any worse than they treated their biological parents. But being a step-parent, being a parent, period, it's very difficult. Yeah. If they have given me our grandchildren as granddaughters. I have four beautiful granddaughters. We have an extended family. We are blended. We are mixed. We have adoptions. We have, um, we chose, in some cases, we got to choose who we were going to love and who was going to be a part of our family. I have a granddaughter, my first granddaughter, who was adopted. We adopted the people who adopted her. It was going to be an open adoption. They are now an integral part of our lives. They gave us a set after six years of trying to get pregnant and didn't and adopted our first grandchild. They got pregnant and gave us a second grandchild. Uh, Then our oldest daughter had a baby. um, So we got a third granddaughter and then, um, she divorced and remarried and we got another granddaughter. So our four granddaughters are all within 13 months of one another. I believe we're all 13. Amazing. I just, I love that you have recognized that love is really in your DNA. Like when you said you, you think you were predisposed to that and it comes out in your work. Like it comes out in the brand of Flying Pig and Queen Bee and and everything that you touch, your your person shines through that. And so I just want to say thank you for sharing your story with us today. I um, I know it wasn't an easy story to share, and I am grateful that you spent the time with us today. Sarah, in some way, um, I have to say it was enjoyable. Thank you. Always talking about the challenges of our life is difficult, but yeah, I'm glad we got to the love. That's the important part. Yeah. I blow you kiss. Thank you. Right back at you. Thank you to our most recent patron, Michelle F. 
If you like what you hear and you haven't donated, you can go to our website today at failforwardpod.com. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at failforwardpod.com.